Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Precision Microcast. Today Josh and I will be talking about early CNC machines and how they are programmed, small gear hopping machines, and our precision problems in the workshop. This week we're back to our history segment and today we're going to be looking at early NC and CNC machines and the path of development they took. So the the initial need for an NC machine came from a American manufacturer, John T. Parsons. He was working with the Sikorsky company making uh, these ribs that go inside a helicopter blades. And at the time, they had these wood ribs, which had an airfoil shape. And then they would uh, use a series of these in different shapes and then laminate wood onto them to create a helicopter blade. The first test of a Skorsky helicopter, they blew apart, killed the pilot. And so they, they agreed that stamped steel for these ribs was probably going to be a better idea. And so Parsons was uh, tasked with coming up with a way of creating a die that had this very organic shape, kind of like a, a teardrop almost. And what they were doing to design these shapes was using an IBM punch card computer and it would plot 17 points and then they were taking a French curve, which is a drafting tool, and kind of connecting the dots. So he wanted to expand on that and ask him to use their IBM to punch 200 points and then he would simply go to each one of those point locations and offset by the cutter radius, essentially bore down with the end mill and create a very faceted looking profile, which at 200 points on a relatively long one, I don't think the facets would be too big uh, and then they would file them down. It didn't take very long at all to realize that when you have 200 points like that, it's very easy to look at your list of point locations and get coordinates mixed up. So they had some, some scrap issues, which was then met with, they'd had a guy on the x-axis control and one on the y-axis and they would double check each other. Eventually, it, it just kind of came to the point where they thought, can we hook this IBM computer directly to the SIPJIG bore? And that was the first computer-controlled machine. They had some success with that, it looked like, but very, very quickly, they discovered the need for a feedback loop to make sure that the machine was actually moving to the points the computer told it to. And that's when the U.S. Air Force, this John T. Parsons and MIT kind of all got together. They had, at the time, the Servo Mechanics Lab, which had done quite a bit of work with the Air Force developing like uh, gun turrets and their ability to track targets. So they knew a lot about servo motion control and feedback loops, and they were definitely the people to talk to about servo-controlled machines. Now this is where it kind of gets interesting, varying accounts, but it looks like MIT kind of pushed out Parsons at this point and went to the Air Force directly. So about 1952, they started a new contract with just the Air Force. Parsons' account is that, you know, he got screwed. He wasn't very happy about this. And so his whole push was to be able to get a machine to make these helicopter parts. He didn't really seem to want to develop a total NC system. And that's MIT's motivation in this. Now, he did get to the patent office in time. And in history, he's been remembered. And he's definitely made some money off of his patent. So it worked out 
well enough for him, I guess. And MIT is well known in their field. So I, I don't know how contentious it was, but it kind of interesting to see early on that there was fallout from this. But so at this point, MIT was kind of leading the charge on NC development. And so instead of the SIP, they bought a Cincinnati Hydrotel, which is a very, very large machine, which is usually used in mold making. And it kind of works on a tracer concept. You have a template, it traces it, and then hydraulically moves the head. So because of that, they were pretty able to easily able to retrofit it for NC control since it already had some kind of system of being offset by uh, this template. This was about 1952 they start developing the Hydrotel to be a three-axis NC machine and everybody's heard of tape cards or tape programming. What I was interested to find out is that wasn't necessarily invented with the computer age. Tape programming of machines actually dates back to 18th century French looms for textile industry. A lot of early looms, they could essentially program with tape cards. And that vernacular just kind of stuck around. And I was really fascinated to see that. The next push for MIT, now that they had this machine that they could program, is they, they started looking at programming languages. This is about when G and M code was born. I believe that was 1958. One of the other programming languages that came to the forefront was called APT, or Automatically Programmed Tool. And it kind of shared the limelight with several other programming languages, such as Fortran. And so early on, it was clear that we have all these different programming languages coming out because by now there's several manufacturers making CNC machines and that there was going to have to be a commonly known code. And, and that's when RS-274 or G-code came to light and the industry kind of uh, defaulted to that. Well, one of the things I found interesting is the Air Force and Army really saw the benefits for not only speed, but lack of user error when it came to what CNC could do for their programs. But uh, none of their manufacturers wanted to be involved with CNC. So a lot of the early push to get CNC into machine shops was the army buying machines and letting companies use them. And that's how they got companies involved with this. Otherwise, they had uh, no real interest. Yeah, one thing I saw was that the uh, the punch card system wasn't marketed as like a time saver. It was just a um, uh, a shift of the workload. So instead of having someone on the machine moving everything, uh, it was marketed as saying, oh, you don't have to employ a machinist, you can employ a programmer instead. And the machine can do an hour of work by itself. Uh, it'll still take an hour, but now you're hiring someone live in a desk and it's probably a little bit more manageable <laughs> in terms of HR. So it was, it was funny that machinists were sort of uh, almost a liability, right, to, to a company from the get-go. They want to they want to screw the machinists from the start. Yeah, one thing I did like is uh, MIT had a press release at one point of their their journey of designing these machines, and this was kind of the first mass marketed uh, NC machine. And in the at the press release, they were giving out the first uh, trade show trinket, which was an ashtray uh, made on this milling machine. And uh, it's actually kind of neat design. You'd think it'd be pretty crude, but they used a, a ball mill and kind of did like a, 
a neat 3D pattern of the dished out center and looks to be some text. So I, I was pretty impressed the shapes that the, the very first CNC mill could make. But uh, reading all this kind of pointed out that GE code is about 65 years old. And uh, <laughs> what's next? And so I, I remember... 10, 15 years ago reading about Step and C. So I started looking at that again. Uh, and Step and C is programming directly off of a, a 3D file and the machine controller is reading that. Um, and so there's essentially no G&M code leaving the desktop going into the controller. Uh, you, you remove that transmit or transmitting section of g-code um the the cam and the machine are speaking directly to one another at this point and uh, i always found that system pretty interesting uh but it appears to be kind of unsupported at this point um a lot of manufacturers have played with it but uh yeah i don't see anybody really doing much with step and see these days yeah i guess it's g-code now is uh, it's just another step in the translation between solid data and, and the actual machine movement. And um, yeah, as you were saying before we started recording, it does seem a bit unnecessary because you've just got another uh, layer of error that is that is being inserted into the whole chain. Yeah, and I, I especially think that like when you're you're really messing around with smoothing both machine and cam side. It's like, how much data loss are we seeing from this? Um, and so I'm curious to see when or if the industry moves off of uh, G-Code, what it'll be to. One thing that I really liked as well about this whole story was uh, how tumultuous the start of the whole, um, I guess, project of NC Control was with Parsons. And uh, I love Parsons' account of the the dispute with MIT and the um, and the Air Force. Uh, I love his account where he says that MIT just overshot their budget, and um, the whole thing was like a commercial or a financial um, misunderstanding. And you think about it; it's like CNC control has given humanity something that's that's probably Un, invaluable like you can't put a number a figure to it um trillions of dollars doesn't seem like enough money and at the very start they were fighting over fifty thousand dollars okay admittedly back in 1950 or so but still that's not very much money considering the scale and the importance of the invention of nc control um and i just found that people don't sort of, especially Parsons, all he was thinking was he was just thinking of his helicopter parts. He couldn't really care less about the commercial viability of, uh, well, maybe he, maybe he did, but at least in this account, it doesn't seem that way. But what's amazing is people don't see the commercial ramifications of some of these really amazing ideas. Yeah, and he was content just to have the system plunge cut, like go to this point, plunge the end mill down, and MIT yeah. saw instantly yeah. how they could have a two-axis contour 
or an, even a three-axis machine instead of this, you know, essentially fancy drill press. Uh, and he, he really just wanted to solve his immediate needs. And luckily, the people at MIT saw uh, the potential. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, he does appear to have made out quite well in the whole deal, though, considering he got it patented. And uh, Bendix uh, bought patent off of him. They were an automation company who I think a lot of uh, Fanuc's intellectual property was based off of wow yeah there's millions there there is millions there what's fascinating about the plunge cutting um type of uh, process with with what he was trying to make was that it's like okay well i'm gonna have these sort of fillets in between each um drill point or plunge point um and his solution was not to add more points oh well it was i guess he added he went to 200, but it wasn't to um, create a final part from the machine. It was just, oh, I'll just file off everything else. Um, and it's, yeah, it is fascinating because that's what everything was based off of back in those days, you know? Yeah, and um, that is how dyes used to be made. You know, it wasn't a, a crazy way of making a die. It's just that the the shape was so radical this airfoil shape that uh you know had it been a, a an oval or you know something a little more basic i think they might not even have worried about it at all but uh so really it all comes down to that guy who died in that first helicopter test flight perhaps <laughs> yeah. oh that's a that's a morbid end but i kind of like it So this week uh, on our machine tool segment, we're going to be talking about gear hobbing and uh, specifically about two companies and they're called Affoltaire and Vali. And now Vali has transitioned into a slightly newer version of itself, but these two uh, companies, they currently still exist and they're located in Switzerland and they make the world's best gear hobbing machines. Um, but before we sort of start, uh, I want to explain a little bit, just very preliminarily, um, as to what gear hobbing is. And more or less, it's a generative cutting process instead of a form cutting process for the gear profile on a blank. So a blank gets inserted into a hobbing machine and the teeth get cut. And that's all hobbing is. And the reason why it's generative is because the hob and the workpiece, so the hob is the cutting tool, it's the carbide or high-speed steel cutting tool. Um, the hob and the workpiece, uh, the blank, are rotating in sync together. So if you've ever seen gear skiving, which is now increased in popularity with, with all these multitasking machines, uh, it it sort of works on the same principle. Skiving is slightly different because you have um, a push element to the cut, whereas hobbing is a pure uh, shear action um, 
so it's it's more conventional. You have it's it, gear skiving. You've got an element of shaping, more or less. Uh, so yeah, long story short, this process is uh, reserved for very high production, very high accuracy gears, and often uh, it's you'll have one gear hobbing machine set up for one specific job and that's all it'll ever do. So it's uh, very application dependent on what type of gear you can cut, you know, um, helical gear or a crown gear or uh, a worm gear or just a standard spur gear as well. And the profile of the teeth is generated by the hob. So your you, every time you want to change profiles uh, or change modules or change um, the number of teeth as well with epicycloidal gears you have to change the the hob itself Uh, and that's why it's sort of uh, lent towards a mass production setup because each one of these hobs are custom made it's very very rare for there to be like an off-the-shelf selection you can't just go to like a harvey tools type of service um each hob is custom made and uh, set up. And I should caveat that that's that's specifically true in the watchmaking industry. You can get um, uh, more general forms for a involute type gear, uh, but even then, most of the hobs are still custom made. So that's a bit of a background on what gear hobbing is. Adam, have you ever? ran touched seen stood in front of a gear hobbing no i was saying how that kind of strikes me as odd seeing as pretty much everything mechanical has a gear in it and i just have no frame of reference for these in industry from what i've seen in the states companies that cut gears tend to do a lot of gear cutting it's not like a job shop has one or two gear cutting machines you tend to focus on it a lot i think and so maybe that's why maybe it just kind of falls into these specialist companies that's right yeah that's definitely true there's two companies here in australia um they're both located at least that i know of um they're both located in melbourne and that's all they do they're machine shops but they just take on jobs involving gears it seems to be that the knowledge that you gain in how a gear is made is unfortunately not very applicable to other applications the hobbing sort of process is is very limited some some i mean you can obviously cut splines and things like that as well but um, you're sort of stepping down a tier in accuracy cutting gear teeth is a demands a lot of accuracy whereas a spline usually well at least probably not so much um and one guy where you can see a lot of gear cutting stuff and he's a machine shop as well that um specializes in gears is american machine and gear on instagram and he's got an awesome awesome um set of photos and and bunch of content on his instagram page about gear cutting and you'll see both uh hobbing but also other forms of cutting gears and i'll let you guys discover that but today we're sort of talking about the micro gears and if you're a machinist you'll have something that has some of these micro gears uh probably quite close to you if you're listening to us in the shop and that's your indicator your indicator has a rack and usually a couple of gears um that drive the needle 
and they're they're sort of spring tensioned with a little hairspring and uh, that's very similar to the type of gears that I make in the watch industry roughly the same scale um, and roughly the same sort of precision the only difference being obviously that watch gears have to look pretty as well but Josh 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 I think you're missing the industry for Timascus indicators (laughs) you're You're letting us sail past, buddy. You got to get on this. <laughs> Billet, Timascus, forged indicators. Yeah. Limited edition, sold out. Pre-order only. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a good idea, actually. Maybe I'll make one just for myself. There you go. Um, but yes, back to uh, back to the focus of, of these... Um, <laughs> of these... Uh, gear hopping machines uh which is wally and affoltaire so we'll start off with wally and wally uh started off in the early 60s um manufacturing uh machines for the watchmaking industry and not necessarily hobbing machines but all sorts of equipment and uh, they slowly entered into the hobbing field and began making these very precise single function hobbing machines and an example of that is a machine called a micron 79 uh, or a vali 90 so i say micron because it's sort of like the same pattern um it's like a bridge port you know other people make the same sort of machine micron 79 and a vali 90 are very similar machines and they're mass production economy machines that were made in the hundreds so 500 600 i don't know maybe per year in the early 60s to mid 70s and um the reason for that one second is this the micron you just bought yes that is right so my micron is probably in late 60s early 70s um and that's the interesting part it doesn't actually have a date on the machine so they made so many of these and at some sort of like price point that they didn't even serialize them. Um, so they all entered production into these huge uh, watchmaking companies that were making literally uh, tens of millions of gears per year and uh, of all sorts of dimensions. And we're talking about gears at the upper end of the spectrum of 20 millimeters in diameter down to about a millimeter or even less in diameter with modules of 0.05 to 0.4. And um, it wasn't necessarily limited to watch parts. A lot of these watch companies made parts for indicators and micromechanics. And uh, like my Vali that I, uh, sorry, my Micron that I bought, um, it was originally purposed for making metering equipment gears so this was for a parking meter project here in australia and the machine never got used for that but uh, a lot of these meters um, you have like the flow meters for gas or electricity they all had these small micro mechanical gears in them as well um and so the valley was a little bit more luxurious it was a bit beefier uh, nicer work and milling spindle and had a W collet system which was borrowed from Shoblin um, and they also made lathes so that's where the, the kind of W collet system interfaced as well uh, but the Micron 79 was definitely like this m- mass production you see like the, it's like the robo drill in Foxconn sort of situation 
and uh just rows of them just rows yeah exactly and uh similarly with Iwali, but it was a little bit more expensive so that's why it was a bit more um obscure and usually reserved to the high precision uh types of types of gears so Vali sort of went out of business um during the quartz crisis and that's when uh watches went from being mechanical to being battery operated and the amount of gears required in an assembly dropped from let's say hypothetically 15 gears down to about four and so suddenly no one needed to make gears anymore and not only that the precision of the gears was not that critical anymore so anyone could make them so Vali turned into Lambert Vali and faded into obscurity um and they still made precision um, engineering machines, but like, and I'm not talking about like a VMC or anything like that. But you know, if you wanted to slice sapphire or something like that, then uh, they would make a machine for that. And then it got absorbed. This Lambert Valley company got absorbed into a company called Moniazana in 2006. And Moniazana was sort of in the same boat as Vali, um, maybe like a parallel company that during the quartz crisis focused on these dental and medical machines that um, cut, for example, bone screws or polished hip inserts or uh, lapped um, semiconductor parts as well and things like that. So Moniazana was slightly involved in the watchmaking industry because some of those machines overlap but uh when they when they absorbed Vali, Lambert Vali, their portfolio suddenly expanded because they had the IP of making these uh watchmaking machines. So Moniazana then made everything. They made roller burnishing machines, sapphire and ruby grinding and cutting machines, um tool grinding machines for uh, dental burrs, honing, polishing, milling machines, and now hobbing machines. And so I strongly suggest going to the Moniazana website. They've got some awesome, awesome machines. Um, and you can see, if you scroll through their hobbing machines, some of these old Vali patterns. And it's the W90 in particular that they've retrofitted. They've put a PLC on there and... Um, I think one even has a CNC control uh, and they've brought it into the 20th century. But fundamentally, it's like a, a 60, 60-year-old 60 machine. Yeah, you're not kidding. I'm looking through and yeah, it's uh, really just an, an older machine that they, they put a control system on. But uh, the, the, the mere variety of machines they make is really impressive too. Um, they seem to have gone after like targeted industries like medical and certain components and watch. Yes, that's right. And what's crazy as well to think about is that they don't, especially in the watchmaking industry, they didn't make machines to make the entire watch as in they didn't make a milling machine and a, and a lathe and this, they just focused in on some gears as well. So they like, the escape wheel, for example, is a very difficult gear to cut. Uh, it's got a, a, a non-symmetrical gear profile. Um, and they made machines that specialized in making those types of gears. Uh, so they found a niche and did really, really well. 
Um, but one example that I sort of penned down here was the M560. That's their machine that can cut uh, these demi-bulls, as they're called, which are half round sapphire logs or ruby logs um, that get sliced into thin sheets uh, to be then transformed into jewels. And a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the jewel making process and there's a re- really good video by, um, uh, I believe it was Crelia Fields that talked about and showed the jewel making process. And this is one of those machines that would be used in that, in that process. One of the things I find interesting with that sapphire cutting, we talked about this earlier, is uh, they're holding them in with a reusable shellac glue. Um, and I'd never seen that before, uh, but uh, the the reusable part's kind of interesting to me. Um, basically, you what was the process? Heating it releases it? Yeah, you can heat it or, I mean... It's not really reusable if you dunk it in acetone, but that's the other way of getting it out. But it is a, um, it's like a heat-sensitive glue. That might have some issues with some machining, but um, that just seemed like a, a really neat way to kind of pot these into the fixture and then slice them. Uh, looked very, very secure. Uh, like the individual slices were still held in the same position when it was done cutting. Yeah, the shellac is very cool. It's an old school um, watchmaker's fixturing trick. Uh, It's probably closer to wax than it is to glue. Um, It's made from the shellac bug. Uh, So it's a natural glue. Um, And it's vegan as well. It's not like hide glue. (laughs) Very important. Uh, (laughs) Very important when you're making those vegan watches. Um, But... It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's really cool because you can reuse it. You can just um, heat it up and it, it goes a bit plastic. You pull the parts off and um, once the shellac sets, it goes hard again and you can heat it up again and you just put the next bit in. So the next company um, that I sort of mentioned at the start uh, is called Affoltair and they had a slightly different approach to manufacturing gears and gear cutting machines and hobbing machines. You um, also own an Affoltair, correct? <laughs> yeah, I do. And that's that's primarily the gear cutting machine that, that we use. The Micron 79 is, um, is a lovely machine, but we'll probably never cut gears on it. It's, um, yeah, it doesn't fit very well in the process that we've created because... Uh, that just going in the lobby yeah it'll go in the lobby <laughs> um it's it's just not suited for cutting very small gears and that's what well that's not entirely true actually um wet the, the real problem is the hob so a single hob costs about a thousand us dollars um or a thousand Swiss franc, and if you're going to spend a thousand dollars on just one part of the tooling, let alone the work holding and how you're holding the actual blank, uh, which can also cost you know five or six hundred bucks if you buy it custom made from from the people that make them, you, you're looking at like a fifteen hundred dollar investment, and um, 
why not put it on the more capable machine, the more accurate machine, the more stable machine than on something that's 70 years old and uh, like sort of untested. Um, and considering I probably, yeah, I paid about 2000 Australian dollars, which is, yeah, maybe 1500 US bucks or something like that. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But in saying all of that, it's a very pretty machine. So if it, even if it just stays in the lobby, I'm, I'm not, not going to complain. So Affaltair, um, they are a fourth generation, 100-year-old company focusing on making machines that cut gears as well as cutting gears themselves using the machines they make as well as all the other machines that you need. And they primarily were a sort of a cottage industry contract company that cut gears up until um, uh, the 90s where they started making their own hobbing machines and or at least bringing the hobbing machines that they made to market. And what's really interesting about Affaltair is that they survived the quartz crisis and they came out the other end fairly strong um, in a position where they could make these really, really top-end gear hobbing machines. Um, and I say top-end because uh, they they inevitably, chasing these microns in this um, very specific cutting process, they ended up doing a lot of things in-house. So they do obviously the design, the assembly and... Uh, adjustment and uh, final QC on the machines in-house, but also making their own spindles, their own CNC control unit, which I thought was really cool, um, as well as uh, all of the tooling. So outside of the hob, there's a lot of uh, work holding that goes into gears, and they make all of that in-house as well. Looking around their website, it seems the work holding and the ability to automate extremely small parts is kind of where they shine um they have a bull fed bull into a robot fed machine where these small stamped blanks are being bull fed up to the robot it's stacking a few dozen onto this arbor and then it's loading the arbor into the machine and it's doing this all offline and uh that's some pretty impressive automation uh getting all that to happen um, the hole on this pre-stamped blank is probably less than a millimeter and it's picking it up and placing it onto this arbor with no issue. Uh, so that really impressed me. Yeah, that project was really cool. Um, if I remember correctly, the, that project was initiated by Rolex um, and they bought uh, maybe like two or three of these Affaltair, I think they're AF110s um, or maybe AF100s, I'm not sure. But with these uh, robots, these articulating arm robots specifically for that um, for that gear. And what's, what's fascinating is that Affaltair has that machine in their production facility making those gears, but uh, Rolex just needed the, the capacity to make a million or two million or five million of these gears per year. So they just invested in, in their own system. And uh, the offline aspect of the robot loading is, is really important because um, if you didn't have that, you'd have to pay for someone to sit in front of the machine and load each of these mandrels. And I can tell you, finding someone who's going to do that 
for nine hours a day or however long people work these days, um, nine hours a day for 200 days in a year, uh, it's challenging. So the robot really pays for itself in, in that specific scenario. I was just impressed from gripping and feeding small, very thin disc of steel can be an issue. Um, mm. And they, they, I'm guessing they have to have these scrupulously clean prior to going into the bowl. Um, that's always one of the issues. If there's any like contract uh, trace oil on the parts, bowl feeding becomes unreliable. But uh, uh, no, really, really impressed with the, uh, the setup there. Yeah, and they, they have a lot of um, automotive components that they make on these machines as well, the larger machines at least, and they have similar sort of automation um, strategies. So they've got these uh, drum feeders, I think they're called, uh, which sit sort of directly in front of the machine, and um, they're very simple in operation, but they also have like the parts as well as the, the arm that holds the parts, and everything has to be so clean and uh, burr-free and uh, dirt-free for it to work on like a 100,000-part scale. It's probably quite similar to stamping where there's a lot of preparation that goes into the raw material before it actually even enters the die, right? Uh, there, There can be a lot of straightening and rolling and camber correction going in, and then you might have some felt wipers to remove any crud. So one thing that... I wanted to touch on with uh, the Affoltair machines, specifically the uh, AF90, which is the machine that I have here in in our factory. Um, And it's the machine that I can sort of talk to the most accurately, uh, is how these machines are constructed. So in contrast with the Vali machine, which is a hydraulically um, driven machine, so all the axes are driven sort of like a surface grinder, uh, they've got a hydraulic piston that pushes the, the carriage. Um, the AF machines uh, are completely CNC. So you have, you've got the height adjustment, the infeed, and the axial directions. So that's your X, Y, and Z. They're CNC. And then you have the B and the C spindles, which are the work holding and the milling spindles. They're servo driven, obviously, uh, and they need to be synchronized. So they're very accurate. And then you have the clamping system, which is uh, hydraulically actuated to provide clamping force on the parts. And then you have a tilt. So that's the A axis. And the A axis on the AF90 is a, is a manual setting for the helix angle of the hob. If you sort of think of uh, a hob cutter as a screw, you have to match the pitch of the screw or the angle of the screw. So it's cutting a straight gear. If you don't, it'll cut a helical gear. So it's, it's like a real big boy CNC machine and it's got glass scales. Uh, all the axes are riding on the, the Schneeberger double V um, uh, linear slides. And they're really beefy as well. You've got the servo sync and the, the CNC control is, is is conversational, but it's very accurate. And you have entered into a completely different territory of CNC machine, or at least, sorry, gear hobbing machine with this Affoltair CNC um, strain compared to like a Vali, for example. And obviously, Moniasana has, has innovated and they've made their own versions of this type of machine, but... Um, 
Apple 10 never did that. They went sort of straight to uh, the market with the CNC machine that did uh, these types of fairly complex gears and accurate gears. And I think the market responded really well to that. And that's why they have a slightly larger market cap. One thing that catches my eye with the AF90 is the control is waist level in front of the machine. Do you bang your knees into that a lot? I'm trying to like lean into the machine. It looks very inconvenient. <laughs> yeah, I do a little bit. It's on sort of like a swivel mount, so you can swivel it so it's flush with the machine, but inevitably ah. you forget when you're setting up the machine and I haven't spent enough time next to the machine to develop like a bruise pattern next next mm-hmm. to where the control uh, control is, but if I spent a week in front of the machine, I'm sure I would. And it is actually a little bit frustrating because you have to look down all the time. Your neck can kind of hurt. But the good thing yeah. with these um, hobbing machines is that once they're set up, usually you're you're just loading. So you never have to look at the control except for the big green button. Well, it does appear to be very well made. Uh, it does have kind of that classic uh, esoteric CNC machine look where kind of spindles just bolted onto <laughs> a frame and then wires yes. poking out everywhere. Yeah, it is, but, uh, it is a bit um, like that, especially um, on the back side of the machine. And I'll post a photo on the Instagram. Um, it, it is clean. It's well organized, but it's a mess. It's like a, I'm, I'm sure many machines are actually like that under the covers, but because everything is so visible because there's so much glass, um, as soon as you look behind the machine, it's kind of like, what did I get into? <laughs> it's just wires Yeah, everywhere. the Mori is really bad for that because the electrical cabinet is made to be able to like caster away from the machine. So they have uh, about five foot of umbilical worth of cord mm. to support that. And uh, when it's up against the machine, kind of in a running configuration, there's just no room for it. And so you try to look in between the machine and electrical cabinet, and it's just all this uh, cordage. When you had the Fanuc guy um, that came to <laughs> help you out, let's say, when you were installing the machine, did you have to separate the the cabinet from the from the mainframe? Uh, I actually did, because we were getting an alarm that the something in the e-stop circuit was interrupted. And uh, so you can't really do anything until the machine's out of e-stop mode. And so my thought was, okay, in the moving process, it, it showed me what circuit was interrupted, but all the, all the e-stops were released. And my thought was, okay, in the process of moving this, one of the wires going to one of the e-stops got pinched. So I, I pulled it out just to check all that. And here what it was, the e-stops on the Mori, you pull. They aren't a twist to reset. And so when I fire it up for the first time, I go to release them. And I give them, you know, just a 90 degree twist. And they just so happened to also pop out when I did that. Not really thinking anything of it. Here, when I twisted it, it wiggled the uh, wiggled the connection loose on one of them. And that's why it remained an e-stop. But yeah, so you pull, you don't twist. Gear Hobbers learned a little today. Uh, your little a- AF90 looks pretty interesting. I wouldn't mind seeing more of that on social media next time you're running that. Yeah, I'm not sure when the next time is. With a lot of these things, you just make enough gears to not have to turn the machine on. But the more parts that we make, inevitably the more gears that we're going to have to make. And it is a bit sad. That's the only machine in our workshop that will probably never get a... Uh, like a job shop type job on it um, uh, everything else the wire and the the kern and even the shoblin and some of the other machines you'll probably be able to 
make a job shop part, but no one's making gears anymore. It definitely looks like the least versatile machine you own. Yes, absolutely. And um, part of the reason why we didn't even run it for at least a year and a half from the point where we got it was that we didn't even have parts for it because to make a gear, uh, sorry, at least design a gear, you have to design the whole ecosystem around the gear as well. And at that stage, we weren't, we, we weren't even in the, in the design space in terms of knowledge to, to, to even do that. So it took us a year and a half to do that, and we were kind of a watchmaking company. Now, just for frame of reference, how many, how many blanks would you be putting on your mandrel? Like 20? Yeah, you can do up to 20. Uh, it depends a little on the thickness of the blank, um, but you have, about, you have about 15 millimeters usually. Um, and so if each blank is you know half a millimeter, you can stack 30, but you usually have a piece of brass on either end as a, as a waste, and that can actually be a blank in itself. But if you're cutting, for example, steel discs or steel gears, steel blank, you'll have a piece of brass and that piece of brass is a bit thicker, so it cuts down on the size of, a, or sorry, the amount of gears that you can cut in a mandrel. But yeah, that's why, um, that's why I was uh, very keen on making that stamping die because the more blanks you have, the less worried you have to be about screwing up a gear. And conventionally, you have to, um, you have to cut each tooth by, by tooth by indexing on like a shoblin or something like that with a dividing head. And um, each blank is very precious. And that's not what I want to be thinking about. I want to have as many blanks as I want. Okay. All right. So once they're on the mandrel, how long does it take to run the program? Uh, for about 15 gears, I think it's about three minutes for my, for my setup. Uh, okay. So, you, so it's not, it's not quick, but at the same time, you don't want it to be super quick because then you're always just sitting in front of the machine with three minutes. You can sort of go around and clean something up and come back. Well, three minutes spread over 15 parts, uh, per part time per part. Isn't too bad, I guess. Yeah, and I'm sure you could speed that up. I think my, my speeds and feeds are a bit conservative because uh, I value the life of the hub over the, the production because we don't have to make thousands and thousands of gears a day. So, um, but yeah. Well, one I learned that, something. <laughs> yeah. One thing that stood out to me um, in comparison of those two companies, Vali and, or at least Moniazana and Affaltair, was the very strong emphasis on uh, apprenticeship and traineeship and bringing up the next generation of, of people. Um, because these industries are so specific, you can't just hire anyone off the street, uh, any, sorry, any machinist off the street to come and work on these machines. And so in a company of 70 people, Moniazana has 10 to 12 apprentices. And I thought that was quite inspiring, having uh, that that sort of um, ratio. I uh, I always like when companies invest in their apprenticeship programs. Unfortunately, it's a more of a European idea than it is an American one. But I recently toured the parent company of Parker Majestic, and of all the companies I've ever dealt with, I think they take apprenticeship the most seriously, um, mm. just in terms of number of employees enrolled. But also, like, on the, the facility's property, they have a legit school 
not wow not a corner of the factory with some benches and some old machines but uh it it was designed to look and feel like a school there's drinking fountains there's clocks there's there's the the smell of a school it's um uh, just a lot of uh, a lot of effort put into educating their their next generation of toolmaker. So that always impresses me. That's that's really really cool. Um, Grobe just did their kind of factory tour. I think they released it maybe half a month ago, and um, they also had a fairly impressive um, uh, traineeship area as well. And I think they're in Ohio as well. Yeah, they're in northern Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like cornfield land. Not much going on up there, but uh, <laughs> they're close. They're they're close to Detroit, where they are. Mm-hmm. Which, from what I gather, you know, we see like their high dynamic five axis mills. But a lot of what Rob does is, you know, kind of basic transfer line type stuff and high mm-hmm. high volume parts. This is our precision problem time of the episode. Uh, Josh, what did you encounter as a problem this week? Um, mine wasn't necessarily a, a long or difficult problem, uh, but it was one that I highlighted in my Instagram stories. Uh, so you might have actually already seen it, but it was to do with how to check um, a profile, and in this case, a gear profile, but it could be any sort of profile on the profile projector. And... Uh, Profile projector is a fantastic piece of equipment, a shadow graph or optical comparator, as they're sometimes called. Uh, And it's great if you have a DRO and you're measuring between two points or if you have some sort of a data module like a QM data with a Mitutoyo and you can measure between um, two angles. But a lot of these systems, even the higher-end systems like ones from Kians, with their digital optical comparators, they sort of fall short when measuring profiles and uh, anything to do with complex forms, like something like a spline even, would be very difficult to measure on, um, on most systems. And that's where the beauty of overlays comes in. And uh, I've been using overlays to check uh, profiles of any sort for a very long time now, uh, since we got the profile projector way back when and uh, very quickly you realize that your printer that's printing the overlay is adding some sort of error to your measurement and uh, you need to find a way how to calibrate the um, the printer to uh, an actual reference on the profile projector and more than that usually the lenses themselves um, they might say 50 times or 20 times but there is an error there as well um, and depending on what kind of system you have and how old it is, uh, the error it becomes unknown. So if you if you found a profile projector on eBay, um, you might not have any certificates with the with the lens or something like that. So the easiest way that I found um, to check profiles on the profile projector after they've been printed is to, while you have the drawing open up in SolidWorks draw a line of known theoretical dimension, 
let's say it's like a three millimeter long line and uh, have it in two axes so in your x and your y plane and present it to a gauge block or a known dimensional artifact and measure the, the error and then offset your scale factor on your printer or either in the drawing itself on SolidWorks, print off another one and then compare it. And, you know, if you're happy with the result, you go ahead and that's a calibrated sheet now. And the good thing with paper is that it's pretty stable. Um, I've had these sheets now for three years and I've never noticed them <laughs> drift, <laughs> you know, in dimension. Um, and also it's very quick, you know, it takes you about five minutes to go back and forth between a first revision and a second and maybe you have to do a third. But my precision problem was quite interesting because I figured out that my printers is, is quite accurate, um, at least in not necessarily in what it's printing, but in the, in the difference between the error on the x-axis of the printer and the y-axis of the printer. And, and if you think of how... I was wondering about that. Because x x axis is like a gantry, but the y is a feed roller. That's right. right. Or, That's exactly right. So it's a on a rail versus a feed, and the error in my printer is actually nearly bang on on both axes, which I thought was actually a mistake. I thought I was calibrating wrong, but um, I'm never going to throw this printer away because it means that I only have to draw one line, and I can scale the whole image. Um, the same instead of scaling in X versus scaling in Y. So that was my precision problem and uh, quite a happy coincidence. Yeah, the uh, the templates are great on optical comparators. Um, they've been kind of a, a constant thing for both optical comparators, but also uh, profile tracers. And um, very, very, very fast. Do you have uh, like a dashed line indicating the tolerance mm -hmm. from the profile? Yeah, that makes it very, very quick to check. Yes, yes. You can have that, you know, classic dotted line on each uh, the upper end of the tolerance and lower end of the tolerance. And the, the limiting factor is always the focus. You know, how sharp can you get the, the line? And if the corner isn't sharp, then the whole system sort of falls down on these high magnifications. But thankfully, uh, there's, there's a use case for my components so I, I enjoy it quite a lot and I feel like if you're not doing this with your optical comparator you're, you're missing out it's it's a lot of fun lining up the two profiles on, on the overlay and the actual part and, and realizing that you've made something quite accurately so what was your precision problem I decided to finally create a fourth axis trunnion for a self-centering vice it's been Ooh. on my Instagram a lot lately. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work with the Haas with it. And um, making it, up until now, the, the fourth axis has been for pretty crude hydraulic work. So if I was within one thou of a kinematic center point, I, I was content. It really, that most of that hydraulic work is plus or minus five thou, so it wasn't that big a deal. But when I was making this fixture, when I cut the locating bosses that the vise would mount to, and also the channel that the vise sits in and the surface it sits on, when I cut those, I wanted it to be as accurate to the CAD model as possible. And that meant when I cut them, I'd have to be centered over top of the the fourth axis very accurately and also the axis of rotation of the fourth axis would have to be aligned with the machine's x-axis very accurately and mm. so when you know i first installed the Haas, i more or less just swept 
the the back face of the indexer, which on the Haas is just milled cast iron. So even in the process of face milling, you have like a Mm -hmm. tenth or two dip off on the ends where the tool pressure loads it up. So it's not that surface you're sweeping isn't perfectly flat. Mm-hmm. And also it's it's not perfectly perpendicular to the rotation of the fourth axis. So it, it works for basic alignment, but I really wanted to try to, to wring every last bit of accuracy out of this while I was setting it up for this trunnion because the work I'll be doing on the trunnion is quite a bit tighter. So I kind of got to thinking back to the days of running SIPs and how we aligned the fourth and fifth fifth axis platters on those and I kind of used a lot of old tricks up my sleeve I guess to to do this and so for aligning the axis on the Haas what I did was I glued a little tab I indicated to on one side of the platter and set my indicator to it and then rotated that platter 180 and then went over and measured there and so now I'm using the axis of rotation of the platter mm. to construct a plane that I'm indicating to on the y-axis. And so the y-axis of the machine and the uh, rotating axis of the fourth axis are very perpendicular. And I checked Z in that way, and I did have to stone the base of the, the indexer a little to get it to sit the way I wanted mm. it, uh, and, and brought Z in. And so that solved my alignment, but now I have to set my work coordinate system for the, the Y0 to be dead centered on the fourth axis. And the biggest problem there is mm-hmm. the thermal plateau of the Haas doesn't mm-hmm. really stop plateauing. It just gets slightly warmer all day. And uh, it's it's in the head of the spindle head. <laughs> And so you you tend to see a little bit of y-axis drift all day. And I, when you turn the machine on, it's at 68. The hottest I usually see it on like normal day of doing mm. tool and die work is maybe maybe high 70s uh, Fahrenheit. And so I I basically got the indexer aligned, and then I started doing my rough machining on mm-hmm. the the trunnion, and allowed it to climb in temperature doing the rough stuff. And once it was where I wanted it temp-wise, I, I went for the final mm-hmm. setting. And and how I did that is I had a, a couple options. One was you could do a ball where you put a ball on one side, sweep it, go 180, sweep it again, split the difference. And that's actually how a mm-hmm. lot of modern CNC equipment sets its axis. They'll have like a, yes. a, a calibration ball that it probes and spins around and probes again. And so I knew that would work, but I, I wanted something a little little easier to approach. Mm-hmm. So there's a screw hole on this trunnion, and it was one on each side of the center line. And so what I did is I went to that screw hole location, and I got my Big Kaiser boring head out, and I took three very light passes through it. And so at that point, this hole I bored arbitrarily should be a pretty good representation of where the spindle is. And then I flipped the indexer 180 and went over and indicated. And the amount of TIR is half of that is how far the center line is off. Does that make sense? So when when you flip 180, it magnifies your center line. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I ended up setting Y-axis center line for that, you know, just getting down to the final nitty gritty. And that worked pretty well, I felt. Um, 
once once it's all together, the plan was then to mount a toolmaker's ball onto the bottom side of the fixture and use that kind of like I was talking about earlier as a calibration sphere. Uh, I've held off Mm -hmm. on that since my initial design uh, because I'm finding there's some chip management issues. A lot of chips like to pile up underneath the trunnion and this toolmaker's Mm. ball hanging off the bottom of the trunnion I think would uh, Mm -hmm. more or less drag through these chips and uh, that's not necessarily what I want to happen. I think now what I'll I'll do is have some kind of quick detach setup on the front of the trunnion where I can uh, bolt a sphere to and then unbolt it when I'm done calibrating. So yeah, that was getting the fourth axis painstakingly aligned and uh, set up to run. And now that it's on there, it it does move around still, the y-axis center line, but uh, I I cut a reference bore. So I have a few tricks I can do with the raw stock to to get set to the y-axis center line again very quickly. With that semi-permanent or detachable setup for the tooling ball, you can finally have a... A practical use of a kinematic mount, maybe. You know, I did think that, but it doesn't actually have to be accurate, the tooling ball. It yeah, can just I be arbitrarily so. placed. So that's one of the interesting things about it. And I, I thought I could potentially write a macro to have the probe do the tooling ball, or I think you can even buy that macro off Haas. But uh, honestly, for all the more I would have to do it, I'd probably just do it with a test indicator and sweep the ball. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that ball would also be how I set the x-axis position, which really shouldn't change much. That was initially my plan, since I, the the edge of the platter is actually out of my travels as it stands now. Mm. I can't probe that face, so I need like uh, uh, something non-wearing that can be used to set x. But I, I thought about that some more, and what I'm doing is I want to be accurate to the center line of that vice. So I could just chuck a one-inch block into that vise and probe for the center line of that vise and set yeah, that, right. uh, if that makes sense. Yes, but yes. All in all, uh, not a bad project. Just I, I'm very fussy about alignment on something like that because doing fourth axis work, even with like 1 thou or 25 microns misalignment, it just really makes you want to pull your hair out. Yes, absolutely. And you'll find that even on the most accurate machines there are always alignment issues and you're always tweaking. So um, I'm, although I'm not surprised that you had to do this on the Haas, it is refreshing to hear how you would. And I think your method, probably the best way, because you can't really fit a test bar very easily. And if you did, yeah, I guess that also presents issues because you don't truly know if the test bar is square. Um, to the spindle face yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure how i would do that with a test bar but it, uh, the reason why i'm bringing up the test bar is um uh, with the kern fifth axis uh trunnion that's how you align that in um the aroa mount just accepts a like an aroa test bar and then you can indicate for run out uh. and then sweep the find find the center of the test bar and then sweep for checking perpendicularity and you can check for parallelism of each axis and uh as well but very very now, smart you know obviously the 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 standard Haas setup of just you know these milled faces it works well enough this is probably just me being a little fussy for the sake of being fussy but uh, it's what i enjoy so why not do it <laughs> yeah it's your signature that's what i wouldn't expect anything less so i noticed you um put this on instagram what was the most common comment that you got 
a lot of people didn't grasp why I had it on that trunnion and why not just bolt the vise directly to the indexer. The 90 degree part kind of threw them up. For a lot of what I want to do, I want to remove the part with a slitting saw. And so having the, the jaws point up towards the spindle, very handy for that. Mm -hmm. um, but I recently bought a slightly larger than my previous slitting saw and I'm discovering the Haas is a little light on horsepower for slitting saws above two inches. Uh, so mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I'm back to parting off with end mills. So it's a learning process. I didn't build this to be like the end all be all process. I wanted mm -hmm. to learn more about multi-axis part making. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this was just me dipping my toe in the water. Well, one of the things I immediately discovered is even for three sides access, I don't have enough tool change positions. Um, yeah. Like, like some parts I do are very basic and it works fine, but uh, if you get more than like two tapped hole sizes, you're in trouble. Um, threaded holes yeah. really seem to hose me because you have a, a, a hole making solution and a thread making solution. So that's two positions per hole. Yeah, I guess minimum you, you two. Run out, yeah. yeah, you run out of holes very, or tool holders very quickly. And so how much does this one, and so how much does this make you want a five-axis machine as your next milling machine oh tremendously um <laughs> it just this just highlights all the problems with the process but i built this specifically for one job it was five part numbers 32 pieces each and it, it's done phenomenally with it. it saved me a lot of time and they're mm -hmm. all just little brackets and clamps some of them get heat treated and then will be ground and hard cut uh some of them are just right to size and it's it's been working out really well i was i was amazed at how quickly you got it done it was kind of like in the morning i woke up and you were doing it and by the time i went back to bed so in like one working day for you it was done it's aluminum man <laughs> yeah. no, nothing take, nothing takes long in aluminum but uh, yeah. no I, I i knew when i did it i didn't i wanted a, a process that would be essentially prep the blank and then bolt the blank to the fourth axis and then let it rip. And so is two yeah. operations. And the first one was preparing the mounting pattern and then just getting it bolted and getting everything lined up and centered. And uh, mm -hmm. then I just let it rough. I tabbed off the bulk of the waste, which kind of helped on the, the amount of cutting time yes. and the amount yes. of chips made. So it went pretty quick all in all. That's awesome. Uh, I look forward to seeing you work with it more, but... Uh... Possibly not too long. I kind of want you. I can't kind of want you to start playing with a five-axis machine sooner rather than later. And we've made it to the end of episode nine. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Josh and I really appreciate all the feedback we get. Uh, we've both been really busy lately, so uh, getting episodes out might be a little slower than our normal slow schedule. So bear with us, but uh, we enjoy making these and hope you enjoy listening. <laughs>